for the sake of Zion, chapter 62. I will not be silent. For the sake of Jerusalem, I will not be quiet until her vindication shines brightly and her deliverance burns like a torch. Nations will see your vindication and all the kings your splendor. You will be called by a new name and Yahweh himself will give you. Give you. You will be a majestic crown in the hand of Yahweh, a royal turban in the hand of your God. The turban is what the priest wore. So this is priesthood language. You will no longer be called abandoned and your land will no longer be called desolate. Indeed, you will be called my delight is in her and your land married. For Yahweh will take delight in your, you and your land will be married to him. God's name for them is my delight is in you. My delight is in you. As a young man marries a young woman, so your sons will marry you. As a, um, as a bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so your God will rejoice over you. I post watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They should keep praying all day and all night. You who pray to Yahweh, don't be silent. Don't allow him to rest until he reestablishes Jerusalem, until he makes Jerusalem the pride of his earth. This is the way of saying, keep praying. Keep demanding that God honor his promises. Now, you can't demand God to do something, but you can demand God to keep the promises that he's already made. And I don't mean like, make sure you do this, God, not that kind of thing, but the praying like, I expect it. The word that we use today is expectation. Expectation. That's hope. See, wishful thinking is, I wish Ohio State would win. I wish this corona thing would go away quickly. That's wishful thinking. Hope is desire plus expectancy based on the promises of God. I don't just hope it will happen. I expect it to happen because God promised it and he's always honored his promises. We use the word hope of a lot of things, but that's not really hope. That's wishful thinking. Yahweh swears an oath by his right hand, by his strong arm. I will never again give your grain to your enemies as food and foreigners will not drink your wine, which you worked hard to produce. When that day comes, the exile will never happen again. But those who harvest grain will eat it and will praise Yahweh. Those who pick the grapes will drink the wine. In other words, when you plant it, you'll eat it from it. It won't be like in the days of old where you planted and somebody else took it. Come though, come, come through, come through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build, build the roadway. Remove the stones. Lift a signal flag for the nations. Ah, but I'm not just restoring your land so you can enjoy your land You're supposed to get in your land and enjoy your own food and then signal the nations to come and eat your food. Never will a day come when the nations will take it from you, but the day will come when you will give it to the nations. That's what you're called to be doing. Look, Yahweh announces to the entire earth, say to daughter Zion, look, your deliverance comes. Look, his reward is with him and his reward goes before him and they will be called the holy people, the ones protected by Yahweh you will be protected, sought after, a city not abandoned. And then he goes on. Notice all the hope here. But then it shifts. Who is this that comes from Edom, dressed in bright red, coming from Bozrah? Who is this wearing royal attire who marches confidently because of his great strength? It is I, the one who announces vindication and who is able to deliver. So Isaiah sees this cosmic giant like a god-like being. And he's coming up from Mount Seir and Edom. Now, Mount Seir is where around the Midianites live. So when Moses was out in the wilderness, he was with the Midianites, and it was the Midianites who taught him about Yahweh. 
Because remember, he didn't know about Yahweh in Egypt and he wasn't worshiping. So at Mount Seir, he met people who followed Yahweh and they told him about Yahweh. And he still didn't put his confidence in Yahweh until he started seeing the plagues. And Seir is in the Edomite. It was not in the Edomite territory back then. But at this time, it is in Edomite territory. So he sees Yahweh coming from Mount Seir, from the south, towards Israel. And he sees him walking. And later you'll see this idea that he's like this giant treading the nations and the ground. And Isaiah says, who is this? And Yahweh says, it is I. And then Isaiah says, why are your clothes red? Why do you look like someone who stomped grapes in the vat? So all your garments are red because you look like you've been stomping on grapes all day. And Yahweh says, I have stomped grapes in the winepress all by myself. No one from the nations joined me. I stomped on them in my anger. I trampled them down in my rage. Their juice splashed on my garments and stained all my clothes. For I look forward to the day of vengeance. And then payback time arrived. Now, who are the grapes? The nations. And why are his garments red? the blood now obviously god is not going to do this literally stomp on people but it's a metaphor okay remember the angelic beings have bronze legs and yahweh has bronze legs in the well actually we haven't gotten that vision yet that's ezekiel soon to come (laughs) um they have bronze legs because bronze is a symbol of judgment and the idea is all the better to stomp on you with and then when you get to psalm 110 it says, for you are a priest, um, so I will, I will vindicate you and your enemies, and your enemies will become your footstool, meaning that you actually put your feet on them and put them down to the ground. That's the image that's here. These are the nations. These are the nations that have persecuted Israel, have dominated. They've taken Israel into exile. And God is saying, I, I'm getting justice now. So he's delivered Israel, but now he's getting justice on all the evil people. And he's punishing them. And he says, I look forward to the day of payback. Then he goes on verse 5. I looked, but there was no one to help me. I was shocked because there was no one offering support. So my own right arm accomplished deliverance. My raging anger drove me on. The right arm is symbolic of a king's ability to deliver people and judge people. Okay, it's the double-edged sword. You deliver some people and you judge other people. So his right arm is working salvation and he's ticked that nobody's helping him, that he's all by himself. I created Adam and Eve to join me and expand the garden. Instead, they joined the serpent. I chose Israel as my chosen people to join me in ruling over the nations justly. Instead, they joined the nations that became like them. And now I have to do all by myself what I created you to do with me. I had children because I wanted to play games with them. And, 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 and I wanted to build things with them. And I wanted to have meals with them. And I wanted to go out in the neighborhood and help people with them. But my children abandoned me and left me and they're gone. And now I have to do all this by myself. And that's what he's saying. And I'm angry. And I'm ticked. Because I wanted you to join me, Israel. Instead, you joined the other nations. And you became like them. 
But I'm still going to deliver you because I made promises. I trampled nations in my anger. I made them drunk in my rage. I splashed their blood on the ground. Now, most Americans would be like, holy crap, I don't think I like that God. But notice Isaiah, verse 7. I will tell the faithful acts of Yahweh, of Yahweh's praiseworthy deeds. I will tell about all that Yahweh did for us, the many good things that he did for the family of Israel. Because of his compassion and great faithfulness, he said, certainly they will be my people, children who will not be disloyal. He became their deliverer. Through all that they have suffered, he suffered too. The messengers sent from this very, his very presence delivered them. In his love and mercy, he protected them. He lifted them up and carried them throughout the ancient times. But they rebelled and offended his Holy Spirit. So he turned on into an enemy and fought against them. His people remembered the ancient times where he is the one who brought them up out of the sea, along with the shepherd of his flock, or the one who placed his holy name and Holy Spirit among them. Yeah, he sees this and he says, and I will praise God for who is faithful. Here's the thing. We have to praise Yahweh for his faithfulness to bless as well as his faithfulness to judge. Too often we only praise him for one side of the coin. Remember, we want a God who hates sin because he loves people. We want parents that when we're beaten up at school or when some guy wrongs us in the wrong way or some girl does something, that our parents get angry. Not lose control and just goes like ape on them and destroys them and goes to jail for it, but at least a parent who gets angry and sees justice, goes to the court systems on our behalf, goes to the cops on our behalf, maybe grabs them by the shirt and just puts the fear of an angry parent into them or something. We want a government that when we get cheated and oppressed, that they get angry at the injustice and they fight on our behalf. Okay, Our movies are full of this. Most of the movies that we watch are about people getting justice, wanting justice. Okay? Because we get angry at this stuff. We watch the news, and what do people get the most angry about? When crime happens or people are wrong and, and nobody does anything about it. And, and, and it's, it's, it's all dandy and fine when you want justice on their people, but, but when the justice looks like this, because we're not just punishing somebody for stealing from you or mocking you or killing a loved one, but now we're punishing an entire human race for their horrible, horrific, grievous sins against a God. And then you're included in that because you're a part of it. Then we're like, oh, God, that's a little scary and freaky. I thought you were a loving, compassionate God. And he says, I am. Because you've wronged people and you've hurt them and I love them enough to get justice for them. And you've been wronged and you've been hurt by people and I love you enough to get justice. And just as much as I need to punish you for wronging other people, I need to punish them for wronging you. And in the end, I will work it all out in my wisdom. But you don't know what sin looks like to a holy, righteous God. And once again, I will say this again. As Americans, we don't know what it's like to corporately, corporately be massacred by an oppressive power and a government. And once again, I'm not discrediting or making light of our suffering as Americans and what we've gone through. And some of you have been greatly oppressed by a family member 
and horribly abused by them in some kind of a way. And yes, you can relate to this way more than I can and many other people. But there's another kind of a corporate suffering when a government comes in and massacres you and buries your loved ones in unmarked graves like Saddam Hussein and and Fidel Castro and Hitler and that kind of stuff. That's a whole new level when now you have people you can turn to, but when you can turn to nobody in your nation because everybody is being massacred, that's something we can't relate to. That's something we can't relate to. And we don't know what it's like to cry out for justice for something like that. And Isaiah sees this and he says, praise be to God. Because you're faithful to redeem us, but you're also faithful to punish. Because a, a good father takes care of their children both in disciplining them and rescuing them. And that's Isaiah's response. That's incredible. That's incredible. That's what he sees. Chapter 66, verse 17. This is the very end of the book. All of a sudden, the poetry kind of goes away, and it goes back to prose. And the book ends with this dialogue, or not dialogue, sorry, with these statements. Verse 66, verse, sorry, chapter 66, verse 17. As for those who consecrate or sanctify and richly purify themselves so that they can follow their leader and worship in the sacred orchards, those who eat the flesh of the pigs, who basically violate all my laws about how... Now remember, the reason you ate certain foods and didn't eat other foods wasn't because those foods were somehow innately wrong or evil or bad or unhealthy but they were a constant reminder of don't mix with the Gentiles. Okay? I'm going to say these foods are clean and these foods are not clean because you're going to remain different. Because meal, we, we, our lives center around meals. And one thing that you do more than anything else in your life is prepare meals and eat meals. Okay? In the ancient world, you spend most of your day preparing for meals. And then you're eating meals. And, of course, even today, we socialize around meals. And you include people in your company when you eat meals. So what better way to pound into somebody's head to remain distinct and unique and separate from all those people who don't follow the covenant law, but then to illustrate it through the metaphor of food. So there are certain foods that are clean, and you can eat those, and there are certain foods that are unclean. If you spend most of your day preparing these foods that are clean, and eating these foods that are clean, that means you're going to spend most of your day not hanging out with people who eat the unclean foods because you're not allowed to eat the unclean food. So you're not going to be inviting somebody over to dinner and say, hey, help me, because they're going to bring all their unclean potluck dishes over. And you're going to have to prepare it together, and you can't touch any of it because you're not allowed to have unclean. And then you can't eat it because you're not allowed to have unclean. You're like, why do we invite those people over? <laughs> and that's the idea. And so it's reminding you, stay unique and dis- different from them. And so what God is saying is, those who eat with pigs, sorry, eat with pigs, sorry, eat pigs. What he's saying is, those who have completely walked away from the covenant that they said they would follow and decide they want to be like the nations and act like them and reject the covenant law. That's the point that is being made. Not like, oh my gosh, you can't eat, you believe you're eating pork. Okay, but today that's not the big deal. Because today we can have meals with these people and go to them because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And now, like in those moments, like I don't have to wait till the end of the week or the end of the month to go to the tabernacle and try to connect to God and seek his wisdom and guidance or find some prophet in another village like Saul had to find a prophet. 
Now I can just, in those moments, say, God, help me. Or the Holy Spirit says, you know what? I don't think you should be hanging out with these people anymore. You need to get away. They're starting to lead you astray. You've had too many meals with them. Go home, find church believers, get regrouped before you go hang out with them again. Now we can listen to the Spirit. And that's why Jesus comes to Paul, Peter and says, eat it all. doesn't matter anymore. Because I'm, I'm I just gave you something that has enabled you to hear the voice of God 24-7 and can help you remain unique and holy in the midst of unclean people and bring them to be, un, to be clean because you're not on your own anymore. You have the Holy Spirit rather than the law. But they don't have that yet. So it says to those who eat the flesh of pigs or disgusting creatures like mice, they will be destroyed together, together says Yahweh. Those who violate my covenant say, forget your covenant. I don't care about your laws. I don't care about being unique and different and being connected to you. I don't care about calling other people to the uniqueness of who you are. I'm going to join them and act like them. God says, you're going to be destroyed. I hate their deeds and thoughts. So I'm coming to gather all the nations and ethnic groups. They will come and witness my splendor. I will perform a mighty act among them and send some of those who remain to the nations to Tarshish, Pool, Lud, Tubal, Javan, and to the distant coastlands that have not heard about me or seen my splendor. They will tell the nations of my splendor. Because you have said, forget your covenant, forget your uniqueness, forget being in a relationship with you. I want to be like the nations. God says, I will destroy you and I will go to the nations and I will make them unique. And they will become my covenant people. This is Romans 9, 10, 11. They will bring back all your countrymen and from all the nations, all the offerings of Yahweh, and they will bring them on horses and chariots and wagons and mules and on camels to my holy hill or my cosmic mountain, Jerusalem, says Yahweh, just as the Israelites bring offerings to Yahweh's temple and ritually pure containers. And then those people, I will use them to bring you back because you're going to become the foreigner now. You're going to become the exile. And I'm going to use them and they're going to bring you back to the promised land. This is basically the book of Acts, where Paul goes to the Gentiles, and now the Gentiles are calling the Jewish people back into the covenant faith again. And that's Romans 9, 10, 11. Basically, God says, I, I, have, I am no longer using the Jews anymore. They're no longer my chosen people. And now there's no more Jew or Gentile, free or slave, man or woman. You're all in Christ. And who is in Christ? Part of the covenant. But at the same time, I haven't abandoned my people. I made promises to them. And I want ethnic Israel to come back to me one day. So I'm going to use the Gentiles to bring them back to me one day. And one day I will bring you together in one people group. And so we haven't experienced that part yet. And then and that's, that, that's that. No, the Jewish people are not the people of God. It's those who have faith. And it always has been. But at the same time, he did call Abraham an ethnic person to recreate an ethnic people, and he wants those ethnic people to come back one day. And it's not that the church has replaced Israel, and it's not that Israel is going to supersede and take over the church one day. It's both. That's, the, that's what Romans 9, 10, 11 is making. That's the point. And that's what God is saying here. And I will choose some of them as priests and Levites, says Yahweh. Ah, it will no longer be you are a priest because you're ethnically born to a Jewish Levitical family. But I will choose priests that are not only not Levites, but they're not Jewish. This is why Peter 
And First Peter chapter 2 says that you are all a royal priesthood. See, God is saying that His day is coming when I'm changing the rules. In some ways, I'm not changing the rules because this is what you were supposed to do all along. But in other ways, I am changing the rules because I'm bypassing you now. I'm circumventing you. And you're going to be the people that are going to be called into the chosen family rather than the chosen people calling everybody else into the chosen family. For just as the new heavens and the new earth I'm about to make will remain standing before me, says Yahweh, so your descendants and your name will be, remain. Now, we'll talk about this when we get to Revelation. But when he says new heavens and new earth, he doesn't mean he's going to destroy this heaven and this, this sky and this earth and create a new one. How do I know that? Because he's not doing that to you. When Paul says you're a new creature in Christ, you didn't, God didn't come to you when you accepted Christ and destroy your body and burn it all up and then give you a new body. And nowhere has he ever said he's going to destroy earth. And he talks about this new heaven and new earth, and they're like, oh, he's going to... Nowhere does he say he's going to destroy. The word new here is being used in their sense of redemption. Because Paul uses this word new all the time, and we don't think like, wait a minute, well, where's my new body then? You don't have a new body, because you're a new creature. You're, you're, a, new, you're a new identity. You have a new position, so to speak. And the same thing he's going to do with the earth. Same thing he's going to do with the earth. From one mouth to the next, and all from one Sabbath to the next, all people will come to worship me, says Yahweh. They will go out and observe corpses of those who rebelled against me, and for the maggots that have eaten them will not die, and the fire that consumes them will not die out, and all people find the sight abhorrent. Now the fire not dying out is our idea of the lake of fire. But once again, this is not a literal fire that keeps burning. Fires, remember, we're in the poetry. And the fire is symbolic of judgment, which means the judgment that they experience will not die out. It's not that there's not a literal fire. Now, remember, I'm not saying there's no literal hell, but there's not like this. God is not a sadistic God that makes people burn for all eternity because they abandon him. He's just a God that says, your judgment's never going to end. You, you didn't want to live in my house? I'm going to kick you out. And you're going to live the rest of your life in another house not with me. That's your judgment. But it's not going to be fun because I'm not with you. And that's the idea. It's not that a literal fire will not go out. It's that their judgment will never come to an end. The consequences of their behavior will never come to an end. And that's how he ends. Now what's very interesting is that all these chapters, 40 through 66, is all about God creating a new land one day. And a new Jerusalem. And restoring his people to it. But he ends with this final statement. However though. Not only will there be a new land. Where I will put you in it. And everything will be great. But remember this also means. That the wicked have to be punished. The only way we can have the land. That you want to have one day. Is when the wicked are punished. You can't have a utopian peaceful society where everybody's following God perfectly with people shaking their fists at God and saying, forget you. They have to be dealt with. There's two sides to this. What side are you going to be on? If you make yourself a part of the ruined city, this is your fate. If you make yourself a part of the faithful city, then Yahweh will be your God and he will be in your midst. And notice it's exactly how Revelation ends. 
You read the last part of Revelation, the whole Revelation, 19, 20, 21, is all about this new heaven, new earth, and God is dwelling us. And the covenant people are there, and the land is blossoming, and there's rivers and two trees of lights and all that kind of stuff. But then he says, but to those who are liars and witchcraft and sorcerers, da 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 they're in the darkness, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He makes it clear there, you have a choice. This is exactly how Deuteronomy ended. Moses standing before the people who've been rebelling and rebelling and rebelling, and they're about ready to enter the promised land where everything is supposed to be good. And he says, Behold, I have laid before you life and death. You choose. And this is where God has sovereignly predestined two fates. There's the house of pain, and there's the house of life. The house of death, the house of life. And those are their two predestined places you can go. But it's your choice. Are you going to follow the suffering servant who is also the king? Or are you going to make yourself king like Adam and Eve and become autonomous? And then you're going to end up in the pit one day and all the kings who came before you are going to say, you too have become like us. Or are you going to join the suffering servant and be vindicated one day and live with God, finding your hope and identity in him for all eternity. That's the choice. Unfortunately, the path means following the suffering servant. And it means that you have to suffer with him. And it means that you're going to take a beating sometimes. But it also means, like First Peter says, that he was faithful to vindicate Christ and seat him on the right hand of God And so he too will vindicate us with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. But do you trust the promises? Do you trust the promises? And God has given you a whole bunch of reasons in his Bible to trust the promises. Because who is like me? And who can you compare me to? And who predicts things and makes it happen? And who fulfills his promises like me? And that's what Isaiah is basically ending on, is that note. This is who God is, and this is what he's promising.